Welcome to What Crime Is It? I am your host, Cassidy, and this is part two of the Sherry Papini abduction case from 2016. The 34-year-old married mother of two vanished while on an afternoon run in Redding, California. If you've not watched part one, please go back and watch. We do a little background on her life, her family, her relationships, her, her marriage to Keith. We take you all the way up to the day that she was found missing. We are discussing the crime today, the many twists and turns, and where the case stands. There's a lot to unpack with this one, so let's get started. So we ended where Keith came home from work on November 2nd. Uh, he found that Sherry and the children were missing from the house. Again, we laid out the details of the discovery in episode one. According to Keith, when he discovered that Sherry was in fact missing, he first called his mother and then the children's daycare listed as Shasta College Early Childhood to ask what time Sherry had picked up the children. He was then informed that the children were still there. Now, I had some questions about this detail, and it seems after some more digging, I'm not the only one. My question was, why wouldn't the daycare have alerted Keith or tried another emergency contact when the children were never picked up? Last week when we spoke, we, we said, well, maybe Sherry was inconsistent with pickup times. Um, but after some more digging, I actually found out some information that I thought was interesting. This is an online review of the Shasta College Early Childhood. This was submitted by a parent, August 28, 2013. This is the best preschool in Reading. Here's a few reasons why. This is not a daycare, no naps, no diapers. Classes are 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. The classrooms are like fishbowls with double-sided mirrors and microphones. Parents can come and view and listen. Another interesting fact from the website, parents have the options to enroll their children in what they call a Head Start or an Early Head Start program, which allows parents to drop their children off at 7.30 a.m. and pick them up at 2.30 p.m. So in other words, the latest pickup time is 2.30 p.m. So Keith got home over three hours after that time. And you mean to tell me that he had not been called by the daycare? That no one had been called? Not a next of kin? Uh, you would think someone like that would be on file, like a grandparent or a sibling. You know, typically, I mean, any doctor or school, I mean, even as an adult, you have to give a next of kin. So I'm confused as to this detail. And there hasn't been anything that I could find that explained whether or not the daycare called him, how he could have not known that the children hadn't been picked up. Unless he did know and he left that detail out. Um, if you have any more information about that, please post in the comments. I'm super curious. I'd just like to add that there were also questions about why she would even send her kids to daycare because she didn't work apart from some online selling and a little like side hustle that she had. I guess she had sort of an eBay store. I don't think it was on eBay, but she was selling like used things online. Um, you know, I send my dogs to daycare. I have two Yorkies and one is a puppy and I need my quiet time. I don't know why anybody would have to apologize for needing a little bit of quiet time to paint your toenails or go for a run or do some grocery shopping or take a nap or eat a naughty snack, maybe out of the prying eyes of your children. Um, I don't think it was such a big deal that she needed a daycare a few days a week. You know, for me, not a big detail. Anyway, moving on. So Keith makes arrangements for his mom to pick up the kids and he calls 911. So here is some audio from that call. One, what is your emergency? Keith is on the line. Hello, can I help you? Hello. Yeah, um, so uh, I just got home from work and uh, my wife wasn't there, which is unusual, and my kids should have been there by now from like daycare. So I was like, oh, maybe she went on a walk. Um, I couldn't find her, so I called the, the daycare to see what time she picked up the kids. The kids were never picked up, so I got freaked out, so I hit like the Find My iPhone app thing, and it said that her it showed her phone, like, at the end of our driveway. We don't have really good service. Okay. Uh, not the end of our driveway, the end of our street. But just drove down there, and I saw her phone with her headphones because she started running again. And it, her, I found her phone, and it's got, like, hair ripped out of it, like, in the headphones. So I'm, like, totally freaking out, thinking, like, somebody, like, what's your, grabbed her. Okay, what's your address? Red. Okay, what's your last name? Yes. 
Papini, P-A-P-I-N-I. And your first name? Uh, Keith. K-E-I-T-H? Yes. Okay. Did you go pick up your children? No, I'm going to call my mom and have her do it. Okay. What's your wife's name? I'm going to, like, knock on every door. Uh, Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-I. And same last name? Yes. So, obviously, there's a little bit of a timeline thing there that's confusing. And any sort of timeline that I have relayed was straight from Keith's mouth, from interviews that he's done. So he's saying that he's going to call his mom to have them uh, picked up at the daycare. According to him, he had already called his mom. I don't know. But he has now made the call, and the Shasta County Sheriff, Tom Bosenko, caught the case. I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) Caught the case. Uh, And he did confirm that the phone had been found neatly placed on the ground, telling the Today Show it appeared to be set in some grass with the screen facing up. And then the earbuds to the phone were loosely coiled and appeared to be placed on the screen. He added, it did somewhat appear to be that it was placed there purposely. Police immediately searched neighbors' properties and spoke to anyone who may have been at home that day may have seen something or was familiar at all with the usual routine of Sherry. 77-year-old neighbor Joyce Allison is quoted as saying, she keeps to herself and stays at home with the kids. I've been here 12 years and I've never seen her jogging. The only time I've ever spoken to him, meaning Keith, was when she went missing. Another neighbor who was interviewed was certain that an abduction had taken place in that area of Sunrise Drive. Someone would have seen or heard something, and yet Sherry was seen jogging in that exact area by a driver passing by. As the investigation progressed, police obtained cell tower and phone records, as well as chased down over 400 leads that came up via tip line. Concerned citizens, having heard rumors for years about sex trafficking in the area, began calling concerned. The Interstate 5 corridor, according to local law enforcement, is a high-sex trafficking corridor. Women and also children reportedly go missing from the area with some frequency. Kay Buck, chief executive of the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking in Los Angeles, said in part, the I-5 corridor was one of significant criminal activity. One such concerned caller was a woman named Isabella Corey, who reportedly told police that because she looks similar to Papini, she was afraid that traffickers might want to take her as well. There was any initial suspicion of Keith's involvement with Sherry's disappearance, his total cooperation with police, including an hours-long polygraph exam, ultimately cleared him with investigators. It took nine days for him to no longer be considered a person of interest, and still, police were not calling it an abduction yet. Regardless, Keith was certain that Sherry was taken against her will. Interestingly, receipts obtained by DailyMail.com reveal that police also traveled to Detroit, Michigan during the first two weeks of the investigation, arriving in the city on November 9th. Detective Kyle Wallace, who was leading the investigation, visited a number of suburbs, including Plymouth, Canton, Northville, and New Hudson before returning to Reading on November 11th. Records show he was joined for the trip by another officer, Sergeant Brian Jackson, who you will hear from later in the podcast. Speaking about the trip at the time, Jackson said, detectives went to Michigan to conduct follow-up about Ms. Papini's disappearance, but we are not able to comment about specifics due to the investigation being open and ongoing. One of the angles detectives pursued was Papini's alleged relationship with a male acquaintance from Michigan. Using phone records, detectives discovered that Sherry had planned to meet the man when he came to California for business, just days before she disappeared. But investigators later determined that he had no involvement in her disappearance. While speculation swirled around town and on the Reddit message boards, they started to ask, had Sherry been meeting men online, maybe for money? There was also some questions about a newly uh, obtained breast augmentation you know, the questions mainly about that were, you know, how does a family who's, you know, existing on a Best Buy manager's salary and a woman who stays home, how do they afford, you know, something like that? Cosmetic surgery isn't covered by health insurance unless it's due to disfigurement and even then only in rare cases. When a well-known internet adult entertainer posts on a message board that her quote unquote friend had gone missing, it only added to the rumor mill. Of course, during this time, Keith was focused on finding Sherry, on caring for their two small children and holding firmly to the belief that Sherry would never leave her family willingly. 
In the days and weeks that Sherry was missing, Keith was plagued by imagined scenarios. Is she hot? Is she cold? Is she hungry? He imagined her screaming his name, begging for him to come save her. And all he could do was cry at his inability to protect and to comfort his wife and mom to Tyler and Violet. Keith began doing television interviews, including, and most famously, I think, the ABC primetime interview with Matt Gutman. Much of the quotes actually from this podcast are from Keith, and they're taken from that interview. The timeline that he lays out is verbatim from the horse's mouth. The town came out for organized searches. They hung yellow ribbons and giant posters everywhere they could. On the Matt Gutman interview, there is a clip from one of these vigils or searches of Sherry's sister and Keith's sister. Keith's sister has a hard-to-explain air of cynicism about her. When she says, we just want Sherry to come home or something to that effect, she does something that body language experts call an eye block. It's a form of deceptiveness. So when you're saying something in the moment and you close your eyes and hold them shut or you do multiple blinking. Please bring her home. She has babies. She loves them. She's a family that loves her. Please just bring her home. Just bring Sherry home. An anonymous donor um, appeared and also offered reportedly $100,000, but at the very least, a large sum of money to get her back. And we're going to discuss that with Annie, who's going to be joining us in a couple of minutes. And now they need $50,000 more. And I'm sort of racking my brain at this moment for what? So even if you wanted to say that posters and ribbons aren't free and you want to provide water and sandwiches for the generous volunteers who are coming out to search, you know, one might argue that this does, you know, cost money, but it doesn't cost 50 grand. You know, you can also maybe believe that you could find people in a small community who will donate water and sandwiches and that posters on the absolute top of the scale might cost you a hundred bucks. I make posters, please, you know, I trust me here. Not to mention that a local printer would have likely been willing to donate or discount the cost as well. You know, under these circumstances, I feel like you probably could have gotten some support there. I just have a hard time figuring out the immediate cash grab. We need money, lots and lots of money. And, you know, what if she needed a private detective might be what somebody says. I can understand that, but it wasn't a year down the road. The police had not yet shown them that they needed a private detective, right? The police were on it. They were searching. They were questioning people. They were flying to Detroit. They were, they were on the case. You know, if a year down the road, you need a detective because you feel like the police aren't doing their job, I can understand that. But it just seemed a little early to need that much money for a detective, not to mention the fact I came to find out that a man named Bill Garcia was a private investigator and he worked pro bono for the family during her disappearance. Sorry, fixing my shirt. But Sherry uh, went missing for three days uh, and the solicitation for funds began. And I think it's a little strange. You know, is the family saying that I'm not spending a penny of my own money trying to find someone who has done this before? You know, that was the speculation. There's an unfounded allegation that Miss Papini's in-laws made claims that she attempted to stage her own abduction in 2006. And the police reports that were filed by her parents when she was a teenager that we mentioned in the first episode, that she engaged in self-harm and attempted to blame the injuries on her parents. Within the first 10 days of Sherry's disappearance, disappearance, a full media campaign had begun. A pretty Caucasian young mother vanishes while out jogging and her fresh-faced husband's tearful plea to the public for their help, for her safe return. You know, it was the perfect narrative, I think, for this image-driven media uh, competing for eyeballs and imaginations. Glossy, professionally shot photos of the couple were splashed across television and national magazines, on web pages. It's like they knew somehow that they would need these high-res photos, that they'd come in handy someday. So on November uh, 5th, Sherry's friend Lisa Jeter is contacted about an anonymous donor that I mentioned earlier. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that, who offers a large sum of money for Sherry's rescue effort. So it's at this time that two new players emerge, one whose name we know and one whose name we don't. Anne-Marie Donahue is back and she is going to pick up the story here. 
Hi, Annie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. You've done a little background on a man named Cameron Gamble, a self-described international kidnap and ransom consultant, which is like super deep. Um, I know. Yeah. Have you had some fun checking this guy out? I have. Oh, <laughs> tell yeah. me about him. What's, what's, <laughs> so, tell me. So Cameron, 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 the character named Cameron. So Cameron David Gamble, that's his name. He's married to Jennifer Gamble. They have five kids, by the way. Wow. So yeah, they have five kids. And um, it looks like I would say they're probably 10 to two, but lots of kids. Yep. Wow. So yes. So we hear about Cameron. We hear... He's actually knows Lisa Jeter. So that's oh. how they're introduced. Yes. This is like very important. So Lisa Jeter. That is important though, not to interrupt you because everything that for. I've read, right? I don't know if you're right, uh, have read this, but everything that I've read, he was, they were introduced through a third party. That's what I thought I read, but no, that's not the case, huh? I mean, not, not what I've read. So first of all, there's a common denominator. Lisa Jeter is friends with Sherry. And right. she, so apparently, so Cameron would go around and make uh, speeches at Rotary Clubs. This is what, and so she met him when he was making speeches on kidnapping, you know, his business, Project Taken. So she met him from there and she said, let me introduce you to the family because we're in this situation. It just looks interesting to me because there's a common denominator. So this friend, Lisa is the one who brings him in to the scenario. Yeah. I read that in a few areas, and I'll, I'll, we'll include the uh, list. But for sure, Daily Beast, but and um, some other areas for sure. Yeah. So at this point, was the anonymous donor? Because I know the anonymous the anonymous donor was introduced to Lisa as well. Isn't that right? I mean, so what was first? What was the chicken or the egg on that? Was it the anonymous donor came through Cameron or? Yeah, I think it was okay. What I read too is that Keith is the one that had this idea of offering ransom. According to Cameron in an interview, might have been with Chris Hansen, you know, Chris Hansen, the crime news. Um, Cameron was like, well, Keith was the one that came up with this idea to offer ransom, even though they're not asking for it, to get her home. It just seems, you know, if you talk to law enforcement, they're going to tell you they don't really, you know, you'd be involved with law enforcement. And usually it's asked within 48 hours, right? And no one in this story has a lot of money. So, so then Keith supposedly had this idea, like, well, why don't we offer a ransom, you know, like you were saying to get her back, like, if this is going to entice somebody to bring her back. Hmm. So I think it was Cameron that introduced the, um, no name, <laughs> Monsieur, no name. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Um, in the shadow interview. Yeah. And, but the thing that's interesting too, about that is again, there is, there are, there's so much conflicting information because I also read that Keith didn't want the money from the anonymous donor, that, that he turned it down at first. And I wonder sometimes, was that a ploy so that he didn't look like he was so quick to grab the money? Maybe, maybe. And then, you know, they started that site for Sherry where they were the GoFundMe. So what did this guy Cameron do? What did they, what did they empower him to do at that point? So at this point, he's going off on his, um, he's speaking about his background as a negotiator. He has this company called Project Taken. Now, if you go on Vimeo, so there's two incredible uh, videos that I found. The one that it's it's called Project Taken Short. It's on Vimeo. Why he would label it, I mean, I'm just being discerning here, but like a short is like what a th- person who's studying acting posts on Vimeo. Here's my short. So it's literally called Project Taken Short. Clearly actors, girl gets kidnapped. She bumps into a guy, He, you know, she ignores him. Um, he kidnaps her, you know, pay attention to me. It, it seems very theatrical, but this is what he's boasting that he does. And so then she's kidnapped in a basement and then Cameron shows up like, I can help you. I can help you get out of the situation. I mean, it's completely not well made. It's really strange. So this is like project taken. So he has this company that he's had since 2006. 
And he does get, um, so he says he does all these training. So, so then fast forward, I want to tell you about this other Vimeo video through, through Bethel Mission. So he's connected to the Bethel Mission Church. A lot of locals are like, the Bethelites are a little wacky. They're, they're, they seem to be from Reading, the area of Reading. And he works in, he works with the church, they're missionaries. So he travels often. He like, you know, he said he was in Alabama and then he was saying his goal was to train missionaries to, you know, when you're in uh, a country and you get kidnapped, he's training them to, you know, get out of the situation, but there's just no real evidence of missionaries saying they've been trained with him. Um, there's really, really hard to find anyone that's like, oh yeah, he, you know, he helped save me. He claims he had like 3000 hours of, you know, abduction and training. And it's just, it, it he worked for the mili- he was in the military. Wasn't yeah. He? So yeah, I'll tell you about that. So his experience. So after nine, but just really quickly, I want to just yeah. on that thought on that, yeah. on that point. So he obviously, um, because the missionary, the missionary angle is very true, right? So we, we've heard totally. of these horrific stories oh. of people trying to go yeah. and spread, you know, whether it's, you know, Christianity to these, you know, countries that maybe, you know, either don't want it introduced there. There's some people who do, but there, there'll be a hostile right. sort of audience. Mm-hmm. And, and you, we've heard horrific things happening to, to missionaries, right? So we know that that's a real thing. Oh, but there right. was some sort of question I thought I saw about it being a nonprofit and him getting in trouble. Well, so yeah, there's really no evidence that it was a 501c and they okay. just can't find anything on there. Okay. That really happened. It takes a long time to register and there's just no, between the Daily Beast, there's also this lovely lady, Erica Courtney, which I'll, I'll include her blog, but she does a lot of deep diving on this. Oh, yeah, she's okay. Great. She's great. Erica so Courtney. Was, yeah. Awesome. So thank you, Erica. We're going to- Thank you, know, you Erica. Yeah, yeah. We will definitely give you so, a shout and we will link you below in yeah, the comments. Yeah, sure. It's called like a box of chocolate. Let's um, vlog. How cool. Erica's, yeah, because uh, because you never know what you'll get. New blind unit's best, adult-based and unapologetic. But she really deep dives on all this stuff also. But there is, so the Daily Beast are like, there's really no evidence that there's, that they are a nonprofit. But he, he's linked to this missionary church, Bethel Mission, which is controversial because rumor has it that he's actually getting income from the church. And then when you talk to locals in Reading, a lot of them are saying the Bethelites, the leaders are fraudulent. They collect money. Just wow. to give you a background, like the car fire, there was a car fire in 2018. So they collect money through their global fund, the Bethel Church Global Fund. And they oh. were saying some people didn't get the money. There's just been a lot of talk about this church not being. Any charges or is this all um, allegations? It's kind of all allegations. I really want people are like, really, the FBI needs to invest, investigate this church. So far, it hasn't gone that route. The right. FBI were mentioned to other people that are from the area. Um, that is something that needs to be looked into. So he's linked to this church, but and he has this company, Project Taken, and he actually claims for bankruptcy. This is again thanks to Erica. She finds it, but his company claimed bankruptcy. It looks like 2012. However, you'll see this video on Vimeo in 2014. So there's just a lot of behavior, I would say. Yeah. Because he goes on TV and then does and does this very strange sort of demand for Sherry's return. I don't know your motive. I don't know who you are, where you're going, where you're from. I don't care. I simply care about getting Sherry back. And that will give you money, no questions asked, right? And yeah. and leave her, you know, on this particular date at this particular time. And how much money was it? Well, it was fifty. It was a hundred, like you said. The guy they were asking for a hundred, and then somehow they lowered it to fifty. Is what I recall. So isn't that interesting? There's all this kind of strange money stuff too, like where yeah. money goes and what happened mm-hmm. to it. And yeah, there's all these questions. Everyone's like, where did that 50,000 go? Cause she was found. Are people getting that returned? And there's so what was the question too about like, so basically he makes this, when does he actually demand her return? Like what was the, like, when did he do it? And what, and how long did they have? I forget. Was it 48? Like for sure. He appears on the scene, November 18. That's what I, that's what he appeared. And she's, she's rescued about four days later. Right. Right. So within that time. Yeah. Within that's four days. Meanwhile, he'd been traveling. He had been traveling. He'd been away. 
you know, and then he pops in on a November 18th. It's very strange. And, you know, he has, he was in the military for about three years, but he, he was discharged. You know, he was a senior airman. He went through the normal training that every airman does, but mm-hmm. he's trying to say he's done all this other, you know, it's called survival evasion resistance escape training. Interesting. Uh, S-E-R-E training, but there's really, it's not confirmed that he actually completed that. But the training videos you'll see, um, and even what happens to Sherry, you know, she gets beat up, she gets tortured. Yeah. That's kind of well, a part of the SCRE training. So well, yeah, this is this is what we're gonna be talking about next. So 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 the private donor, just as a PS to this, did he yeah. I know he did an interview. Yeah. But he was in the shadows. Did you know Sherry? Never heard of her before. Did you know Keith? Never heard of him either. So you just walked into this? Yeah. Why? It seemed to me that, you know, here's a girl that, you know, has got two little kids and got a husband at home crying, and I just visualized what that life was like and felt like, you know, let's let's see if we can be creative here. Like he's really adamant that it was sex trafficking, this whole sex trafficking angle that comes up, you know, and he goes, I just want to, yeah, of course she, she looks so young. And I'm like, I'm sorry, she doesn't look like she's 18. Like everyone's debunking that theory. Right. But the other thing is that there's definitely um, activity in that I-5 corridor and that, and that there is a lot of traffic, trafficking that goes on of, of men, women, boys, you know, children, which is so terrifying. It's so awful. It, totally. And I mean, it's true though. It's unfortunately, you said like massage parlors. I mean, every it's, it's a transient area. They say people get dropped there and then they get, you know, taken. I, I do. It's, I believe it's very tragic, but they use that angle. So I would love for you to hang out with me while we sort of go through the rest of this story and see, you know, I'll, I'll kind of have you chime in in a few places here. So right now where we're at is, is she's missing. Um, and now these, these men have come forward. You can watch the, the, the ransom video. You can find that online there, you know, it's all kind of readily available. So you know, at this point, the local paper, the Sacramento Bee, which covered this story from beginning to end, and you can get a lot of information from them. Um, they covered they covered quite a bit, but the big interview would come on December second when Keith sat down with Matt Gutman on ABC's 2020 for a two part interview. And we've you know we've cited that interview quite a bit. Um, it's tough to get a good version of that online because ABC is super. Um, you know, they're very tight with the way that they, that they, you know, air their, their shows. You have to pay to have a subscription, et cetera, et cetera. You can find it. It's kind of a bootleg version online, but you can find, you know, clips and you can find the full interview. Um, by the time he had done that interview though, on December 2nd, there had been a, a, a major break in the case. Um, Police logs that were seen by DailyMail.com show multiple sightings were reported in the days after she vanished, including at an eyebrow store in the Mount Shasta Mall, at a Hilltop Medical Center in Reading. And then on uh, November 22nd, just 20 days after Sherry went missing, a 54-year-old marketing director named Christine Everson claimed she saw a woman at a travel center truck stop just outside um, Reading, just on the outskirts, who closely resembled Sherry Papini. And uh, the way that she tells the story is... it was approximately 7 p.m. Christine was with her husband and her son filling up their car with gas for an out-of-town trip. This is all according to uh, Daily Mail. Christine noticed that the woman looked frightened. She, she noticed the woman in the car. She noticed that she looked frightened and was with two men who kept going back and forth into the travel center. Um, Christine said that it was dark. And I looked over and thought, why are those men going back and forth from a truck um, in, in and out when the woman isn't? You know, he, She said, you know that women always love to take a potty break and look at what's in the store. And she just thought it was odd. She said that they were there for 20 minutes pumping fuel, etc. And my husband was like, what are you doing? Uh, and I just saw this blonde lady in a blue pickup truck about 10 yards away. And I did a double take. I thought it was Sherry Bapini. So I went over there and I asked her to roll down her window, which kind of blows my mind. Like that this woman just approached the truck. Like you got to be solid to do something like that. Like, I don't know. I might call the cops. I might go inside and say something to the clerk, but I don't know if I'd walk up to the car like that. That was definitely like gutsy. Um, and her husband was there. And honestly, you know, give women like, I love that. Like, I love that she was like, her instinct was to not think about herself, but to think about how she could help this woman. And, you know, maybe we can all take a page from her playbook. I mean, we certainly shouldn't put ourselves in danger, but I thought that that was really kind of brave. So she said that, you know, 
she was she wasn't positive because she'd never seen Sherry Papini in person. Right. And she said when she approached the vehicle, she said, you look like that woman who was abducted. You know, are you OK? She said that the woman never answered her. She asked her if she was being held against her will. Do you need me to call 911? Again, the woman didn't answer. She said that this woman looked tired and worn out and scared. Um, she said that she was part of a local anti-trafficking coalition. So she was like acutely of, I guess, the signs of this sort of thing. And she was just convinced that this is what was happening. She said that, you know, she could meet her at a safe house. And the woman, all the woman said was thanks. She knew something wasn't right. She called the police. She gave the description, the plate number, all the details that were needed. Um, and she wouldn't make any eye contact. Like she gave all of the, all of the description, but I guess they did do a little bit of research. I don't know how much they could have done, but when he was asked about this specific sighting, uh, because a lot of, you know, news outlets were talking about it. Sheriff Tom Basenko said the matter had been looked into and it was determined that the woman in the car was not believed to be Sherry Papini. So interesting kind of thing. I mean, obviously they have their reasons for believing that, but so we get to Thanksgiving. It was early Thanksgiving morning when Allison Sutton says she saw a woman in trouble on the side of northbound I-5 in Yolo County. And she says, quote, I have like a vague memory of a flash of her face with a definitely scared look on it, said Sutton. Seeing a panicked face, blonde hair and an arm waving in the air was enough to startle Sutton, she told KTXL. I could have hit her. She just really was really close to the side of the road, frantically waving what looked like a t-shirt up and down, trying to get someone's attention, Sutton said. She pulled over, called 911, but had no idea the woman that she saw was Sherry Papini, the young mother who vanished during that jog. And she knew about it, but she didn't know it was her. She said she felt like she should have done more. So Keith was at home that morning. He was shaving. His phone rang, his cell phone. According to him, it rang more than once. He didn't answer it. He let it go to voicemail, which I think probably during that time was unusual, you would think. Um, but then when the house phone rang, he picked it up. And he knows that it, he's, you know, he's, it's blurry because I think it, there's a lot of adrenaline in that moment. But he said he heard the police and then he heard his wife in the background screaming and he knew that it was her, that she was safe. Um, and he goes on to write about the pain that he felt upon seeing his wife for the first time. And here's some quotes from that. He said, my first sight of my wife was in a hospital bed, her face covered in bruises, ranging from yellow to black because of repeated beatings, the bridge of her nose broken. This statement was released to uh, Good Morning America, describing the condition she was in when she was freed. He said she was thrown from a vehicle with a bag over her head and a chain wrapped around her wrist that was attached, wrapped around her waist that was attached to her wrists, right? He also said that uh, she was badly beaten um, and that her hair was chopped off and her nose was broken. So he basically was giving details to a lot of different people. But the problem is by giving that statement to the media before going to law enforcement, uh, he may have compromised parts of the investigation. Sheriff Bosenko said during a news conference, I did not know he was going to release this uh, until a short time before I did a media interview with some of the details he provided. It could affect the integrity of the investigation. Um, he wrote that and it's out there. He did not talk with us about it. We were a bit surprised by it, Bosenko said. Um, he wants to keep, he wanted at the time to keep the Papini's uh, ordeal private and that the investigators were working, quote, aggressively to find the kidnappers. Um, and they hope that talking to Sherry, that she might remember more specifics about the abduction. They weren't sure if she was targeted specifically or if it was a random abduction. Um, it turns out that after interviewing Sherry, the sheriff said that they were looking for two armed women driving a dark colored SUV. He described the alleged captors, two Hispanic women, one younger with dark curly hair, pierced ears and thin eyebrows, and one older with thick eyebrows and straight, straight black and gray hair. Papini told a forensic interviewer that when she was allowed to leave the room where she was being held for a shower, she slammed her younger captor's head into a toilet. Detective Jackson told Papini um, that she got cut on the side of her right foot in the fight. But apparently Jackson uh, said that when she was being processed at the hospital, no evidence of a cut was seen in uh, the photographs. So that was strange. She also told um, that she 
didn't look at the women. She avoided looking in their face so that they wouldn't beat her. Uh, she also told investigators that right before she was released, the two captors were arguing. Then she heard a gunshot. The younger of the uh, women escorted her out of her room, put her in a vehicle, and drove along a winding road, eventually just dropping her on the side of the road. Um, you know, they basically went on to sort of detail more of her physical condition. They did find some woman's DNA and male's DNA. He added that the male's DNA was not Keith's. So then they released the sketches. Um, they didn't ring any bells for investigators. Uh, once the sketches were finalized, detectives and investigators reviewed the sketches and compared the sketches with known witnesses or contacts. And nobody, you know, it didn't ring a bell with anybody. Um, they did discuss that she was found branded on the back of her right shoulder. It was um, still unclear and it remains unclear to this day because of obscure letters, they say. They don't know the quality of the brand is poor, uh, Detective Jackson said. Um, they never really did reveal. We, we still don't know. He said that she was wrapped in zip ties, sort of a compliance uh, restraint, sort of a pain-induced compliance restraint is kind of how they uh, described it. They finally released surveillance footage from a church. It showed Papini running onto an on-ramp of the Interstate 5 after being dropped off. And uh, the video wasn't immediately available, but of course they made it available later. She was able to walk to a nearby church, they said, um, but nobody was there at 4.30 a.m., obviously. And then she walked back and was able to fly, uh, flag down the woman that we discussed earlier. So, you know, I remember seeing that video and I remember thinking that it just looked crazy. Like it just looked so crazy. Just this shadowy sort of figure. She, it's black and white. So she's all lit up in white and it's black, pitch black all around her. And she's just like, she looks completely disoriented, but it almost looks like, remember Blair Witch? It almost looks like Blair Witch. For me, it almost looked like Blair Witch. I was just like, this is, just looks like this crazy staged that looks real. And I, listen, I thought that then. I, that, I thought that even before any of the information started to come out about her. You know, Keith goes on to, um, you know, he has so much gratitude to everybody. He puts out statements saying that their well wishes are so, you know, appreciated. And, you know, the police start to say that, you know, there's no, even over 600 tips, there's just literally no leads. There's nothing that even matches this case, even though there were some abductions. They, they don't in any way kind of, you know, match anything else that's happened in the area. Um, and at that point, Keith takes Sherry and the children and they go to an undisclosed location away from press and prying eyes. And there really, there's no, there are no photographs of her. There's no, you know, there was, there was a report that they chopped her hair off. Apparently they cut it off to her shoulders. There were no photos that were ever released of the bruises, of the brand, of anything, which I do think is, could technically, unless it, because it's still an invest, open investigation, it may not be public record, but I find it interesting that there's literally nothing. But the one thing that's interesting, Annie, is there was a lot of speculation about the composite and the description of the two females. Um, and some pretty disturbing information about Sherry's past uh, was brought to light. And because of this information, an allegation sort of emerges about a possible motivation that she ha may have had to stir up racial tensions with within the community. And that perhaps her choice of naming two women of Hispanic origin as her captors was a deliberate targeting of Latinos and perhaps meant to incite some sort of violent response from the white community. And Crystal, who's not feeling well and unfortunately couldn't join us this time, um, she has laryngitis, poor baby, but uh, she'll be back with us again. But she was going to take this part over, but it was a racially sort of charged blog post in 2003 under the name Sherry Graff, which is her maiden name, her parents' name. Um, it was circulated in forums uh, as evidence of her troubled history with Latinos. And the blog detailed an incident where Sherry's father had been called Hitler and Nazi by a group of uh, Latino guys and gals. And I just, I'm going to read like a, a little, a little piece of this. Just, I kind of have a few things here that I thought were sort of interesting. Um, she says, you know, I grew up in a small country town, Shasta Lake, California. Um, my school was predominantly white. It was small enough town that everybody pretty much knew each other. I was known as a really good athlete. My dad had a reputation for being uh, my biggest fan, for standing up against Latinos. 
He even was kicked out of a uh, out of the stands for getting in fights and defending himself when the Latinos would call him a Nazi. Um, it seems that our being of German descent was a constant irritant to them. I would get in fights too, having to stick up for myself instead of knuckling under to what the Latinos girls said and wanted. Um, she also says here. That one night she's at a homecoming game and they were kind of, they were saluting to her and you can find, you know, this online, but you know, I won't read the whole thing, but it just basically said that she, she started a fist fight with these, with these Spanish, these Latino girls. So he lunged at her, slamming her head between the bleachers and pounding her face. And this is the second time she talks about slamming somebody's head, which I think is also kind of interesting. She slammed her captor's head and she slammed you know, because now she's trying to sort of disavow that this is even her, but she uses very similar language in mm-hmm. this that she did with her report when she was found. So it's, yeah. I found that to be very interesting. Um, the girl, apparently the Latino girl did not press charges, but the second part of this post, she says this, which brings me to the the point of why girls should not fight. We are just too fragile. I, I was just going to say that. I'm like, I know. I'm starting a fight. Like literally I've never started a fight. Why I know. I know. And it's like, but it's just so funny. It's like, we're, we're fragile and we break easily. And I totally agree with skinheads that girls should not fight. They should stand by their yeah. men. Right. And then she says this thing. She said uh, her dad was super proud of her. She yeah. talks about a time where they showed up at the pizzeria that her parents um, owned, the same girls, and they beat her up and they, you know, they, they fractured her leg and like all these crazy, like, I think undocumented really injuries to her. But, but so then the last thing that I just want to read, she says, being white is being more than just being aware of my skin, but of standing behind skinheads who are always around in spirit as well, having pride for my country. Being white is my family, my roots, my way of life. It's always there. There's no denying it. It's nobility. It's strength. It will be there to lift me up when I really need my pride, when I need to keep walking. So, you know, what's interesting. She went on to say later that, you know, her father said it was nonsense, that she did not write that, that it was some mm. jerk who like posted it and it isn't true. Her husband said that it was vile and awful and that it wasn't her. But you know what? There's some similar language to the language that she used when she described what she did while she was in captivity, slamming the head, slamming the head, all that stuff. Two Hispanic women. It was two Hispanic women that beat her up. It was two Hispanic women that kidnapped her. But also what I thought was sort of interesting is if somebody was going to write a really vile post, right, and attribute your name to it, would it be so narrative like that and talking about your relationship with your dad and like the pizzeria that you own and like how proud he was of you and the fact that you were a good athlete and a good student? Or would it just be like vile, like laden with like, you know, slurs and, and you know, if somebody's going to try to like get you and somebody's going to try to like post something in your name to hurt you, like, wouldn't they go a little further than just being like, I'm proud of being what, cause it's wrong no matter what. Right. So we're, we yeah. all can agree that the post is like very, you know, it's very strange. Yeah. But don't you think if somebody was trying to target you by posting in your name that they would have gone further? Doesn't it sound a little mild? It does sound mild. That sounds like a story. Like you said, like that she would actually write, like she's not, yeah. she's not ashamed of the way that she feels. Those are her views. And she's talking very candidly about her family and about, where she comes from and the kind of student she was. And it's Mm -hmm. too detailed to be something that like somebody's just trying to post in her name. That's what I, I don't understand. I just feel like if somebody was trying to like frame her, they would have said some pretty crazy outlandish stuff. Yeah. Right. It's weird. And it's, I just think that it's too strange that there's so much of a line being drawn of so much in common with what is being attributed to her as a blog post and what, has happened in the way that she described her captivity. I just think they're so similar, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and I don't know what that means necessarily. And obviously the police and the FBI aren't very interested either in, in finishing up or wrapping up this case. I mean, you know, to kind of, to kind of like PS all of it, and then we can get into sort of our theories about it all. But 
Keith ended up writing sort of a letter, um, a public letter, and I won't read the whole thing, but he just says he wants to, you know, address the overwhelming amount of gratitude that he feels and that he wants to thank everybody who, um, for the extremely uh, generous donations that he received, you know, and then he sort of gets into, we live in a nation of free speech accompanied uh, with an era of technology that provides immediate gratification. He says, I am grateful for this system as it is what spread my wife's face quickly throughout the world. The unfortunate side is that some people have been sitting in angering expectant positions waiting for the gory details. Lies and hate have been both exhausting and disgusting. Those people should be ashamed of their malicious subhuman, subhuman behavior. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, which is also an interesting word, right? Yeah. And they say it's, that's like something white supremacists use. Oh yeah. Subhuman yeah. is definitely a I've dog never whistle. i that word. I'm like, what? And then no. subhuman is a dog whistle for sure. And then it's yeah. like, ultimately it was Sherry's will to survive that brought her home. That was the last line. Thank you. There's a lot in between there too. That's just, you know, but that's essentially what it says. That's sort of the, the cliff notes. But at this point, Annie, it's been four years since the disappearance yeah. of Sherry Papini and the police are no closer to finding the truth. She lives in the same house. Um, she's married to the same man. Her children are obviously, you know, growing and, and she's just living a quiet life. And I'm sure not without some sort of consequences because of this ordeal. Um, you know, I do think it's interesting that they bought the house that they were yeah, living so that's in. That's interesting. We, we talked about last episode, but like they bought the house from his father for like 128 yeah. grand. Like they bought it from him. It's very interesting. Because they were renting it to that point. They were renting it. And then they bought it around, what did they say? 2017, I can't remember at the moment, but we have it. It's in the Daily Mail article. And like what I was saying, I, I said in the first part of this of this um, podcast before you joined is that the police offered $10,000 immediately yeah. for her safe yeah. return, right? Or for, for any kind of information that would lead to her safe return. Then there was a GoFundMe for 50000 and the private donor offered 100000 mm -hmm. And it just felt to me that immediately they started asking for money. Immediately there yeah. was a cash grab. Right away for them, it was like, we need money, we need a lot of money, we need money. And it's like, why do you need so much money? Posters are are not that expensive. Yeah. People are volunteering their time to go and find her. And the police just started the investigation. Yeah. And I found out that there was a private investigator that worked pro bono. So they weren't that's, even paying. That's interesting. Yeah, that's. So for me, it's like, why do people right away need money? Yeah, I don't get I it. Keith, maybe because suspicious. Keith needs a leave of absence from work. Like, okay, I understand. Right. But again, it was two or three days in and they started asking for 50 grand. Yeah, I agree. It's she she could have come back at any, like they didn't know anything at that point. No, no. And they really had to let law enforcement kind of do their thing, you know, investigate. Yeah. And he really made those boo-boos when he started talking about the details, Keith. Yeah. Yeah. Big yeah. time. But I also think that sometimes that can be a sign of nervousness, right? A sign. Yeah, to I think he's nervous. He's well, period at the end of the sentence. Let's just like, this is what it was. Let's, like, let's move he's on. Freaking out. He's freaking yeah. out. I mean, he like adores her. I mean, I think I have a theory, but I want to know it. This is where we're at. So we're going to do the so, final, the final thoughts on this case before we, before we close and, it out. And just, you know, the gambles, like they're not in Reading anymore. They apparently skipped town went to North Carolina. Like there's, they're not, and is he still, they're, they're not, I don't even know they're kind of went MIA. Cause like, I also saw that he was involved in some other kind of abdu abduction cases, like that people were still sort of calling him for things, you know, but yeah. they're not, they're no longer in Reading. That's interesting. No, it sounds like they moved to North Carolina, but that's, they don't know if they still live there. It's very, very interesting. But hmm. my, my thing with um, Keith, like when he, when he went to the media, my gut says that he was like, I'm going to call you out. You're, you're calling Wolf. She's clearly, I really think she's staged it. I just don't think she was kidnapped. What's really sad is there's another woman who's still missing, you know, right. Stacey Smart. And they, they were really upset that like this case kind of took over in the headlines and she's still missing just a side note, but something for us to all be aware, you know, to say, think say about. her name again. Stacey Smart. Okay. And we'll, Stacey we Smart is still missing everybody. Yeah. So like something to think about, you know, she, she went missing like right before, Sherry did. I, hmm. I just don't buy that she was abducted. I, I just don't. And I feel Keith went to the media. I feel he was like, you want to play this game? This is where his controlling comes in. 
I'm going to go to the media and I'm going to talk to everyone. Look, there were, there were, you know, was she a webcam girl? Was she dating men online? Was she going to meet that guy from Michigan who obviously had nothing to do with her disappearance, but you know, was she meeting somebody? And we even talked in first episode about, could she have possibly put herself in a situation that ended up being dangerous, that she didn't expect to be dangerous. Yeah, it could be that. Mm-hmm. Was there a was there a race, a racially motivated, you know, um, racial motivation for any of this? We don't know that either. We don't know any of it. What I find sort of crazy is that her family has completely gone silent. Yes. Um, the police ha- and the FBI have not continue, continue, uh, continue to oh. pursue the case. Yeah. And everything is just back to normal and back to life. And meantime, the community of Reading is not worried that there are two armed Hispanic women driving around with a handgun trying to pick up blonde joggers. Like, is it because they know? I just think maybe the community isn't concerned because they know the truth, you know? And, um, and I think that my theory really, honestly, is kind of the same as yours. You know, I don't know what happened to her. Um, I've never seen any of her injuries. I've never seen any evidence of her brand. I've never seen anything. But I, I do believe the detectives, when they say she was beaten, so there's no reason to, right? There's no reason to not believe them. There's no reason to not believe Detective Jackson when he says she was battered and her hair was cut, right? So I do think obviously something happened, but I think that the story we'll never know. I don't think we'll ever know what happened, but I think based on her, her past and based on, you know, the things that have come to light about her, um, if you if you were to really try to get me to to guess, I think she put herself in a situation that unfortunately she thought maybe was going to be an adventure, and ended up being a a mis a misadventure. Right? It could have been truly that that she was getting together with somebody, and they turned out to be a bit you know evil, and they that that could and she's embarrassed about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yeah, or that she just like she was hurt. Or, yes. or listen, maybe she still had some sort of beef with the Latino community and, the, and, and there were people who were coming after her. Like, we yeah. don't know that either. That yeah. could be. And I wouldn't right. even, there's, pro, there's gangs in, in California. Sure. There's gangs everywhere. And that's, and that's not to blame either side. That's just to say that, is it possible that if she is somebody who is a known enemy of, of you know, a Latin gang or a Latin, that they wouldn't try to make an example out of her? And if there weren't ongoing fights and if there wasn't, you know, who knows? I mean, it's enti- that's entirely possible too, you know, that she was taken for whatever reason because of her views or the people that she spent time with or... Um, and and we'll just never know. And that is kind yeah. of the end of this case. But um, thank you so much for doing this with me, yeah, Annie. Absolutely. I appreciate I it. And we're going to do it again. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to What Crime Is It? Please subscribe. Leave your comments below. We also have the audio version of the podcast available wherever you can get podcasts. Annie, I will see you very soon.